0: it for me I am not sure that I like social distancing (laughs) oh let me reverse that I am sure I don't like social distancing it sure seems a foreign concept to communion in my estimation however we do what we must and it is good, though, that we are here, because many places are not even meeting today. And that is a shame. It's, it's frightening, I think, the fact that this could turn out to be a social norm that really affects us as we try to do the will of God. And I think things are gonna change. I don't know how. I'm going to touch on that just a little bit later on. But a few weeks ago, I was taken back by a comment that was made by a brother in Christ of mine. He was joking at the time, but what he said was offensive enough for me to recognize that if I had been part of the group that he referred to, I would have been so offended that anything the man had ever said to me after that I would not have listened to and it caused me to rethink some of this material that I had been working on I'm not obviously going to tell the the situation but this is sort of an Ephesians or excuse me a Thessalonians chapter 4 verse 9 and 10 lesson and he says there now the love of the brethren you have no need for anyone to write to you for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another Indeed, you do practice it towards all the brethren who are in Macedonia, and we urge you to excel even more. So these are things that you know, and we're just gonna to try to, to get better at the things that we know to do. Oh, that was First Thessalonians 4, yes. First Thessalonians 4. One or the other. Oh, there is no four in, in the first one, or the second one. So it's the first one. It is the first one, has to be. Okay, so anyway. The lesson is on, on speech. And undisciplined speech is the result of pride. Discipline is in being a disciple of Christ. And I am probably the most undisciplined speaker when it comes to just casual conversation of anybody in the room. I just spout off, don't really think about what I'm saying. Usually it works out okay for me because I can retract and and work around what I've said because I come from a good place most of the time. But I've been working for the past decade, the better part of it, to learn about speech, to learn about talking, to learn about communication, to learn about logic and thinking and understanding and try to not to be able to be a PhD and understand and tell about these things, but at least when I engage in conversation and it goes wrong I can look back and try to understand how I misinterpreted or how I didn't speak well to have a better communication with people. So as I I look through these things, I don't have an expertise in it, but I have a working knowledge. So our speech is to be gracious because we are disciples. Our speech is gracious because we are disciples. We are not vulgar people. We don't try to be vulgar people. Yes, we slip up and things happen and we are sinful by nature, but we don't try to be that way. But back to my original point with the joke, if we offend somebody, even once, if we haven't met them before, we have lost all opportunity to influence them. So I had James read Matthew chapter 15, because Jesus is telling the Pharisees about where speech comes from, what they say matters. So who were the Pharisees? Where did they come from? So Antiochus, was a Sele- Sele- he was an Eastern ruler, Seleucid is the word, and he had decided that he was going to convert all of the Jews to Greek thought. He banned Sabbath worship. He banned circumcision. He banned food laws. And he would enforce all of these things with the death sentence. He sacrificed pigs on the altar in Jerusalem and forced Jews under the penalty of death to participate in this. If you had a book of the law, you were put to death. So the Hasidim, the righteous Jews, rose up, started a revolt, and defeated Antiochus. The Maccabean revolt is the book of Maccabees is in some of the Apocrypha. And it's the story of that is there. So out of the Hasidim came the Essens and the Pharisees. And the Greeks favored the Pharisees. They kept their people being good citizens. And that's what the Greeks wanted to see. The Essenes, they had a completely different view. They thought to be pure, you needed to get away from society. So they split off from the Pharisees. And the Pharisees became the rulers of the Jews, de facto, because the priesthood had become so corrupt that the people really weren't involved with the priest. And if you think about how Herod built his temple, he took this lowly temple that Zechariah and Zerubbabel built had reconstructed and he built this marvelous monument that was to be envied by the Romans who were great builders. So he really didn't have a a lowly spiritual mindset about him and the priests were doing the same thing. But the Pharisees were really bent on enforcing the purity laws, the purity rituals, and tithing. I don't know if they had a motive for enforcing tithing. Perhaps they were getting a kickback, and that was the reason for it. But they were good men. They were honestly trying to do the right thing. They washed their hands. He says, these people honor me with their lips, but in their heart is far away from me. In vain do they worship me as they teach as doctrine the precepts of men. They did have washed hands. They had honorable lips. They did teach the law. They were honored men. So when the disciples asked Jesus when he says that it's not what enters the mouth that defiles the man, it's what proceeds out of the mouth that defiles him, well, he had jumped on their idea of purity. He he had put Pharisees in their place, and the disciples were concerned about the impression that Jesus was making on the Pharisees. Sir, you have offended them. You know they are the religious leaders. They were concerned because they were honored men. That Jesus even honored them. Your righteousness must be greater than that of the Pharisees, implying that they did have righteousness. Do as the Pharisees say. They sit on the seat of Moses. He didn't honor them because of their hearts. He condemned their hearts because they broke the law with their hearts by their violation of the tithing. What is given to, what should be given to my mother, honor your father and your mother, in there in the Ten Commandments. He said, just give it to the Lord and then you don't have to take care of your mother and father and you'll look good and and you'll be the righteous person you should be by tithing to the Lord. And the purity laws, the washing of the hands, He took care of both of those, hit right at the heart of them. But the disciples were concerned about the impression he made. But Jesus knew their hearts and he knew the impression that he wanted to make on them. You are not keeping God's laws. You're teaching the traditions of men, the commandments of men, as God's law. Every single word that we say makes an impression. It's designed to make an impression. That's what communication is. I try to impress on your mind what I'm thinking. I hope that you receive it as I present it. Usually doesn't happen that way, but that's the idea behind it. But Jesus, as he answers, as he typically does, he doesn't answer the question, do you know? He answers, They're they're blind. They're blind men, leading blind men. They're both going to fall into the ditch. He knows his kingdom, and he knows their heart, and he knows they're honored, but he also knows what's going to happen, that they're going to reject his kingdom. And he knows that because he knows that they are speaking for God. And I don't mean that they're speaking for God as in we speak in favor of God. I mean speaking for God as in putting words in his mouth. So yes, anything I say today, I don't mean to imply that we don't go and speak the truth and tell people what the Bible says. What I'm saying is if we take the idea that we know what the Bible says and tell what we know, we're not really telling what God has said. So Jesus sees this relationship to his kingdom, and he sees the hearts of these leaders, and he knows that the way that they're doing seems right to men, but he also sees the lie that is in their truth. (coughs) Excuse me. Yes, the lie that is in their truth. Because every lie does have some truth in it. If it didn't, it wouldn't be believable. We wouldn't believe it. So it has to be that way. But most of the Jews that he was talking to would have recognized what he says at the end of this passage. He says, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witnesses, slanders. And all these things are presented in the last half of the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. When he gets on to them about their father and mother, he's gone back to the fourth or fifth commandment, honor your father and mother. When he talks about teaching the precepts of men rather than the word of God, he's gotten on to them about not putting anything in front of God. So he's basically accused them of breaking all 10 of the commandments. So in vain do they worship him. But studied men would also recognize what is said about Isaiah. Isaiah was telling the religious leaders, you are going to be put into captivity and all of your power will be taken away from you. So they knew that at the writing of Ephesians, which we're going to go to next, is Ephesians chapter 5, if you want to turn there, by the time this writing occurred, the opposition of the Jews was seen. The crucifixion and the resurrection happened. There was a greater understanding of this conflict between Jesus and the Christians or Jesus and the Jews. And as it progresses out to the Christians, there was a sharp divide between the precepts of men and the kingdom of God. And even more so now, after 2000 years of history, we should be able to see this division. But Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 5 verses 3 through 6, But immorality and impurity or greed must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. There must be no filthiness, no silly talk, or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving thanks. For this you know with certainty, that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Paul's delivering a lesson here on speaking and it's written down and writing is communication. It's one of two ways of communicating. We either speak things, We say things. Yes, there's nonverbal communication. I show my emotions. You can see what I'm thinking by my nonverbals. We have intimate relationships that we don't have to speak to understand each other. Yes, but these are supported by our verbal communication. So they're not, I can stand here for 10 minutes and think my next thought, but nobody in this room is going to know what it is without me saying it or writing it down. So these are the two forms of communication. But as Paul was speaking about speaking in this passage, it's wrapped in evil. We have impurity. We have immorality. We have covetousness. We have filthiness. We have coarse jesting. But we're not these people. This is not our pursuit. But right in the middle of all this are two words. Silly talk and those seem out of place they don't seem to fit in with the rest of this and we'll look at a solution real quick before I go on with this point in the midst of all this nasty satanic ungodly we have but rather the giving of thanks but rather the giving of thanks I want to step back just a little bit to Ephesians 4.29 and see what happens there. Let no unwholesome word proceed out of your mouth, but only such as a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment, so that you will give grace to those who hear. Have you ever heard, let's say grace. Before dinner, say grace. Let's give thanks. So what happens here? The edification will give grace to those who hear. It will give thanks to those who hear. Ah, you have edified me. Thank you. I feel better. I have been given grace. I give grace because you gave grace. That's how grace works. So we have this grace and giving of thanks, which is going to undo all of this evil that these two little words are wrapped in I want to jump forward just a little bit up to <coughs> Ephesians 5 19 to go ahead and start to build for another point but in Ephesians 5:19, he says speaking to one another in Psalms and hymns and spiritual songs singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord he says speaking to one another with your heart making melody when I talk to you I should have a song in my heart I should edify you because I am joyous inside. This is good, graceful speaking. The inclusio of three through five. Impurity, immorality, covetousness. Our point, a couple of points in there, what is right to speak and giving of thanks, followed by impurity, immorality, not entering the kingdom because of greed very very tightly sandwiched together and compressed on those two little words and it brings a deeper fuller richer meaning out of those two words silly talk talk as it's used in the scripture to ask bid boast to put forth to say to tell to speak silliness Unmindfulness, mindfulness is a buzzword in this day and age, unmindfulness, heedless, heedlessness, unthinking. So what we're talking about is unthinking talk, unthinking, putting forth of our ideas. I don't know if it's antithesis, if Paul's just simply saying, don't even joke about this stuff. Or if it's just not a really good translation, the NLT actually translates it foolish talk. And I think that more grasps onto what I'm, I'm seeing in this whole context is don't be talking foolishly. There's evil all around you. Speak gracefully. And Matthew 12 in verses 36 and 37 give us, whatever the direct meaning of this passage is, the importance of speech and matthew twenty twelve says, "On the day of judgment, we will account for every careless word, and we will be justified or condemned by our words. This is how important the speech is. We go to Ephesians chapter four and verse fifteen and say, But speaking truth in love, we're to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. We go there and we jump right to, oh, we have to speak truth. We must speak truth. I'm not saying don't speak truth. That's my disclaimer earlier. We must speak truth. But if we go to this truth and we think that our truth is his truth or our knowledge is his knowledge or our will is his will, we have done exactly what the Pharisees did. We've taken our thoughts and our understandings and made them God, and made them gods. The way we interpret scripture, there's two definitions of interpretation. The first one being to explain in an understandable way. That is the way to interpret scripture. The other one is to explain according to judgment, belief, or circumstance. If you take your judgment, belief, and circumstance, and superimpose it onto Scripture, you're not interpreting Scripture the way God has given it to us. So, the Pharisees were teaching the precepts of men and not the gospel. It is not ours to own. Finally, in Ephesians 6 and 18, He says, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the spirit. And with this in view, be on alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. We have changed our speech that we're talking about there from speaking to one another to speaking to God. The important, important part of speech that Paul both begins and ends the Ephesian letter with, as he begins in chapter 1 and verse 15. For this reason, I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, which exists among you and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in all of my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe. These are in accordance with the workings of his strength and might, which he brought about in Christ. He begins with prayer. He ends with prayer. We should be prayerful in our speech, both graciously to others and to God himself. The whole book of Ephesians is filled with a thought, a theme of speech. So is James. We see it in Thessalonians. We see it in Philippians. If you go all the way back to the beginning, once there were two people, the first things that are recorded is somebody saying something to somebody. Then to Cain, he says, why has your countenance fallen? At the very end, in Revelation 22, 17, the bride and the spirit say, come. Let those who hear say, come. We begin and we end with speech. The whole book, the entirety of scripture is filled with communication. Not what is, what, It is what is said, who said it, why they said it. And then, of course, what Yahweh wants us to know. But notice how much narrative there is. Look at the narrative carefully. Look how much information you get from what people say. If you want to look at how the speech and the heart are connected, go to <coughs> Proverbs 7, verses 7 through 20, 14 through 20. But it's all written down in a book. I don't know why, but I thought it important to look up the definition of book. Huh. Covers, leaves, writing. It gave a physical definition of the book. But then the next thing it says is it's a literary <coughs> composition. Okay. I looked up literary because I wasn't really sure. <laughs> what is literary? It is of or about human learning. It's about human learning, it's about com- communication. Writing and speaking are social activities. There are things that we do together. Yes, I'm quite hurt by social distancing. It hurts me to my very heart. I'm not a techie. I don't do Facebook. I don't understand Skype. Probably going to learn because things are changing. Thought back to the pandemic of 1918. What happened? What was going on? We had a war. We had a pandemic. We had the roaring 20s. That's the big worldwide picture. That's what's recorded in history. But my sphere of influence is not worldwide. Yes, I might touch people all over the world, but my sphere of influence is right where I live, right where I stay, right where I am. So what am I going to do about all these things worldwide? Nothing. What happens when all this is said and done and all shakes out? First Peter is still going to be there. Give an account with fear—excuse me, grace and reverence to anyone who asks. That's what I have to do. Who asked me? So people will change, things are gonna change, but there's still gonna be lost people. There's still going to be motivation to teach them. Grace and pride are juxtaposed. They are set in contrast to one another, both in James and Peter. Graceful speech is thankful, helpful, uplifting, converting, and we never get a second chance to make a good first impression. Once we insult or demean, we lose all opportunity and it forever affects our relationship. I just have three quick thoughts on how I might speak more gracefully. First of all, these are there's some scripture related to them, but they are not Biblical biblical thoughts, I think, but not from Scripture itself. Be a friend. Jesus called the disciples, the apostles, his friends. First of all, be friends with our community, our congregation. This is where we come for edification. This is where we can come to help one another, to learn from one another, to be comforted by one another if we need be. But also be a friend to the world, care about people, don't categorize people by their sins. That's what happened with the example I gave at the beginning. It dehumanizes people. It makes them part of a group, not an individual. So be a friend. And if, we, if we're not friends with each other, how can we invite people to be friends with us? Because we have something special if we don't. Practice speaking the language of grace and love. Speak grace and truth will follow. Let your speech be seasoned with grace as salt so that you will know how to respond to each one, Colossians 4, 6 tells us. Be a friend. Truth will follow. Honestly assess our motives. Are we winning an argument? Is it intellectual superiority? Do I just know more than somebody else? Is it spiritual pride? Again, don't categorize people. We're all here to talk to one another. Spiritual pride. Jonah. I'm not going to those sinful people. I don't want anything to do with sinful people. I might be corrupted. Well, if I'm going to be corrupted, I need to have one of you people with me too. Keep me on the straight and narrow so we can go to sinful people. Where is our influence? Who really do we influence? We're not changing, we're changing the world one person at a time. We're not going to change unless by some great means I get to go before President Bush. I know, I know, but anyway, that's a point, not a person that I'm trying to make there. Integrity. What are we all about? Integrity cloth all the pieces fit together are we integrated to be graceful there's a tear in the cloth we've lost our integrity are we Christ like in our love for the lost in our reasons in our humility for the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all men instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age, looking forward to the blessed hope. Finally, Jesus taught by saying nothing. When he was before or on trial, he said nothing. We don't always have to say something, we can just Go about our way, as some have done. Jesus taught by asking questions. Ask questions that presuppose spirituality. Not just questions of others, but questions of ourselves as we consider our motives and we look at our integrity. What do you mean? What do you think? What do you believe? What is your source? What are your sources? What are the consequences of what you're saying, thinking, doing? What happens if you're right? What happens if you're wrong? How do you consider yourself? Raising a question does not require an answer. Yeah. I don't know. I'll get back to you on that. It's always an option. But just what do you think? Planting the seed, as some of my friends like to say, Don't use the Bible as a bludgeon. It's a sword. It's not to stop a conversation. It's not to shut people up. It's not to prove people, I hate to say it, it's not to prove people wrong. It is, but it isn't. It is not for us to use to prove people wrong. It's for us to use to convict them in their own minds that they have a better calling to elsewhere. Use it to deepen conversation. The Bible will deepen the conversation if you let it and know why it says what it says not just what it says Amen. finally i want to go back to ephesians chapter 5 and verse 6 and let no one deceive you with empty words because of this thing the wrath of god comes upon the sons of disobedience empty words probably one of the easiest and one of the most difficult words in the greek language Kinos, Logos. Kinos is empty. It means empty. Literally or figuratively. The cup is empty. My mind is empty. Literally or figuratively. It means empty. Logos. The word became flesh. Explain that. All all of everything we could possibly know and all the words that we speak are contained in logos empty words easy and difficult whether inane or sophisticated they will come up short unless it's the Word of God so as Paul writes excuse me it's Peter who writes through Phil Silvanus our faithful brother or so I regard him I have written to you briefly exhorting and testifying That this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. We're going to stand and sing a song of encouragement. Be encouraged.